Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Monash Musculoskeletal Research Unit podcast. My name is Tim Travail, and I'm delighted to be joined by members of the Monash Musculoskeletal Research Unit today. So we've got uh, PhD candidates, Josh Norton and Patrick Valance, and we've got uh, our supervisor and PhD extraordinaire, Peter Maliaris. Welcome, everyone. Thank you. All right. So, you. so today we are going to have a look at, and a bit of a conversation around study quality. So we're going to consider what are the most important components of a study and what we might uh, look at when we're trying to judge the quality of a paper. So, first of all, I'm going to throw it over to uh, I'm going to throw over to you, Josh. I'm going to put you right in the spotlight. So I've picked up a new paper. It's a it's an interventional paper. Perhaps it's a it's an RCT, and it's telling us that uh, a certain intervention is fantastic. What's the first thing you might look at when you pick up that paper to try and decide whether uh, whether that's a good paper and whether that's something that you might want to you can really rely on the findings of that paper? Uh, good question, Tim. A, a tough question because there's lots of uh, places to look. So it's hard to sort of uh, know exactly what the most important place is. Um, one thing I tend to look at first is the type of patients that they've included in the study. So I tend to look at the population and uh, if that's going to be then applicable to the setting that I'm looking to apply that research into. Um, and then after that, I would tend to delve more into whether what they've reported is uh, accurate or reflective of a true uh, effect size or measure. Fantastic. Thanks, Josh. So you're looking at you're very much the applicability to the, the question that you're trying to answer, which I like. Pat, what about you? Um, yeah, I definitely agree with Josh there. So looking at the population, how well it represents well, what we're, what we're then uh, extrapolating from there, but uh, as well, I think going back to the, the basics of, of research, they're so looking at uh, the, the methods in depth, uh, looking at the validity of the outcomes they've used, um, have they established reliability for those outcomes, you know, really pouring through the bare basics of it um, to make sure that they've established all the groundwork that they need to do so that then when interpreting their findings, uh, you can be confident that, um, results are due to true effects as opposed to error or other factors. Um, so I think that's, that's for me where I, I look first. Um, and some, some papers are great at it. They'll be really transparent uh, in their reporting and you can um, yeah, pick that apart really well. Others, not so great. It doesn't necessarily mean that uh, their findings aren't true, but it's much easier to uh, detect or find, come to that conclusion where they've been transparent. Great. Thanks, Pat. And over to you, Peter. What's the first thing you look at when you pick up a fresh paper? I think uh, what's been covered probably is similar and along the same lines as what I would do. Uh, I would probably point people to there's really good re resources on the Oxford Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine website, um, and they've got a hierarchy. And I, I can't, I haven't got the link in front of me now, but um, they talk about, uh, similar to what Josh started with, and that is, does the population reflect the people that you want to apply the evidence to? If it doesn't, just stop reading. You don't need to read any further. Uh, is, there, is the paper free of bias or any major biases? And if the answer to that question is no, then you stop reading. Uh, and then the third one, I believe, is what is the size of the effect? How big is the effect and how much can we trust it? So then um, uh, if it's an effect that you think is worthwhile, then you can 
uh, you know, explore the findings of that study. So that it's a really nice, it's a really nice uh, flow in terms of thinking about reading a paper. Um, pretty much covers sort of the points that have been raised so far. Excellent, and we'll we'll certainly include that link in the show notes to the podcast. And so, Peter, back in episode six, you discussed the importance of blinding, so our listeners can go back and and, and get a deep dive into that um, for, for some more detail. But how important do you see that in relation to the overall study quality? Look, blinding is important. I, I don't know whether it is more important or less important than other other types of bias or other other sources of bias, not blinding. Um, when you're blinding, um, you're really looking at information bias. So you want to make sure that um, the people that um, are having the intervention are unaware of what, uh, whether they've had an actual intervention or whether they've had a placebo or a sham. And um, uh, that controls for uh, uh, measurement bias uh, and performance bias. So um so basically it it is it is important because we know that um people's um well people's i guess uh people's preference towards certain treatments can have a profound impact on how they how they uh, actually experience a treatment um so people self select for treatments we you know we go to a chiropractor because we think they're going to fix us or we go to a physio because we think they're going to fix us um, or, you know, whatever it might be. And uh, we automatically, um, within the clinical context, uh, self-selecting for a massive placebo effect because you're, you're choosing treatments that you think are going to work. You probably wouldn't go to a physio if you didn't think it was going to work. Uh, but in, in trials, we try and control for that huge effect of non-specific effect. Um, so I think it is very, very important to control for that non-specific effects, probably one of the biggest non-specific effects, placebo effect. Um, uh, so I think I think it is important, but it's also very challenging to control for it because it's it's hard to actually um, undertake placebo-controlled trials. One of the trials that I'm leading at the moment is an injection trial, and it's really easy to do placebo control for injection uh, and with medications. Um, uh, but... Uh, for exercise, it's really, really, really challenging. And maybe um, Josh might want to elaborate on that because he's uh, going down that path or a similar path. Yeah, I think um, exercise is a very interesting space with the research that's getting published. There's uh, lots of trials that are looking at whether one exercise intervention is uh, more effective than another type of exercise intervention. Um, and ideally would be able to control for that as a placebo um, but exercise obviously um, is very difficult to control for as a placebo so what we're maybe really comparing is uh, exercise that we think is going to have a true physiological effect and adaptation um, to that exercise within the body compared to maybe an exercise where we uh, think there's not going to be a true physiological effect or adaptation within the body so um what we tend to see in some of the research that's published is that uh, just simply by doing exercise, whether that's uh, going to have a true uh, adaptation or not, uh, just by getting people to engage in exercise seems to have an effect in uh, helping people improve and get less sore and uh, recover from their condition. 
Excellent. And so we've, we've covered a little bit of blinding there and a little bit of um, a bit around the study design. Um, Pete, can I just come back to you just to, just to give your thoughts around uh, sample size when you're looking and you're picking up a paper and you're you're looking at the sample size? How do you make a, a judgment as to whether this paper is high quality in terms of the sample size that they've included? Yeah, look, it's, uh, it probably comes down to a robust sample size calculation. Um, and the sample size calculation is designed to uh, provide enough people to look at an effect, uh, to, to identify an effect that you think is important given the variability or the noise in a specific measure that you're using. Um, so, uh, so with a sample size calculation, it can be, it really can be, it's very user dependent, so to speak. So you can do a sample size calculation that is favorable and one that is less favorable in terms of feasibility. Uh, and probably one of the things that, you know, a PhD student has to think about. So you can do a sample size calculation that has got 90% um, with power of 90% or power of, uh, of 80%. Uh, you can do a sample size calculation with a large effect size that you want to identify, which is easier than identifying a smaller effect size. And that will be sometimes guided by literature. Sometimes you have to not make it up, but have a have a best guess of some of those numbers and, out, and inputs to the sample size calculation because you just don't have them. So uh, it can, it's not, it's certainly not um, a precise uh, area for a lot of people. And, you know, when you're running, when you're doing a trial, you <clears throat> try and have it as robust as possible, but also being able to be feasible at the same time. So, um, uh, but the thing to look for is, have they done a power uh, sample size calculation and how robust does it sound? Um, generally, there's a sort of rule of thumb. If you've got less than 50 people for an intervention, it's probably underpowered. Um, you know, you're, you're, you probably want to have upwards of 50 people and for many interventions, way more than 50 people. Um, so sort of 60 plus people per group. Um, I, you don't see many power calculations coming out under that. In, when, you're, when you're looking at health outcomes that are very, very variable and noisy. So, um, so that's sort of a, a bit of a rule of thumb. There's a bias related to small samples, which is one of the reasons why systematic reviews are great because they can take a whole bunch of small studies that people have done on very little budget and it becomes one really, really big expensive study that tells you a really better answer. Um, but then there's the problem of people doing things in very different ways, which then is a, probably a topic for another time, but reduces the potential to pull data. And thanks, Peter. So what, what else? We've covered quite a few things there. Was there anything else that, that anyone wanted? I'll just throw this out to the floor. Any other parts of the paper that you really kind of like look at as the key things to go, right, this is something I'm going to carry on reading or, or this is something I'm really, um, it's probably not worth my time. There's enough, my, my stack of reading list is high enough. What can I, uh, what can I just chuck out the pile and, and move on to the next one? This um, probably flows on a little bit from uh, what Peter was talking about before, where um, maybe after checking those first couple of things around the sample size and uh, the actual population, the sample that they've taken, uh, looking at the measure of effect 
Um, and a really kind of basic thing to look at would be um, have they reported uh, an effect uh, between groups or have they reported an effect that is a measure within the same group? Um, and that can be a really easy way to uh, filter out uh, a study because ideally it would be looking at a between group measure rather than a within group measure. Thanks, Josh. And, and uh, when we're having a look at those, those outcomes, as you've talked about, we know that we can see a, a statistically meaningful difference. And then we can know, we also know that we can get something that might be a slightly different measure would be a clinically meaningful difference. Um, does anyone want to talk to that or talk about uh, what they would, uh, what they would consider to be clinically important as opposed to, to statistically important? Um, so yes, uh, p-values, have um, been a hot topic recently. Um, and that's something we've looked to quite a bit um, in the, the literature to determine the worthiness or the, um, the quality of, a, um, of an intervention. But it always tells us is um, whether or not the um, null hypothesis has been rejected. So the chance that uh, an outcome is due to, um, or is, is a chance finding. So looking instead to uh, the, the magnitude of effect, um, Looking to the 95% confidence intervals or the confidence intervals can be really nice um, in that you're getting a, a greater perspective for the, um, the the magnitude of effect and as well effect sizes. So this this is actually that's a good point in that studies uh, when reading through a, a, a paper um, and assessing the, the quality, yeah, that's that's the idea of transparency again. So if they're reporting, you know the um, standard deviations, the confidence intervals, effect sizes, you can take away a lot more from it than if it's just a simple p-value. So I think that's really important to look to for assessing uh, the quality of the study, but also what you're going to be able to um, take away from it and apply uh, in clinic or so on. Yeah, thanks, Pat. Um, all right, Peter, anything from, anything from you to add in terms of the overall study quality? The only thing I would say is... Um... In just encouraging people to read, the, the, there's such a um, uh, there's such a shortage of time and such an overload of reading that we all have at the moment as clinicians, as as uh, researchers and research students. So it's uh, and patients as well. But it's 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 uh, so important to read the fine print. And um, what I mean by that is uh, the 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 uh, conclusions are often not really supported by sometimes the methods or the results. So reading through the methods and making your own mind up about the conclusions and whether they are valid uh, is, I think, very, very important when you're looking at a paper. So don't just, you know, um, try and um, try not to be sucked in with the, uh, with the, with the bottom line. And uh, it's a good exercise in learning to critique to actually read through and think about what are the potential biases. So you're saying we shouldn't just read the abstract? Try not to. Try not to. Every, everyone does it at some point. But try, try not to. All right. Fantastic. All right. That, that probably uh, will start to wind up now, just in the interest of time. And the only other um, series that I'd just like to point our listeners to would be Stephen Camper's uh, series that he wrote, Evidence in Practice, the series for clinicians, um, which was a fantastic overview over a series of, of papers, which we can lead, uh, which we can link the listeners to, where he aims to help practicing um, therapy to build expertise in understanding various different parts of research and it's a it's an excellent um dive into each of these areas 
So thanks very much for your time, everyone. Um, Really appreciate it. And uh, we'll catch listeners next time.